Chapter 20 of The Dude Wrangler by Caroline Lockhart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter 20 Wally Qualifies as a First Class Hero. Pinky took a triangular piece of glass from between the logs in the bunkhouse and regarded himself steadfastly in the bit of broken mirror. He murmured finally. I ain't no prize baby, but if I just had a classy set of teeth, I wouldn't be bad looking. He replaced the mirror in the crack and sauntered down to the cook shack, where he seated himself on the door sill. The chef was saying, as if he meant it, Ah, I have sighed to rest me deep in the silent grave. Pinky interrupted. How'd he get to work? to get teeth mr hicks if they ain't no dentist handy like mr stott no question could be put to mr hicks for which he could not find an answer he now replied promptly well there's two ways you can send to montgomery ward and have a crate sent out on approval and keep trying till you find a set that fits or you can take the cast off your gooms yourself send it on and have em hammer you out some to order is that so what kind of stuff do them use to make the cast of your gooms of some uses putty some uses clay but i believe they generally recommend plaster of paris it's hard and it's cheap and it stays where it's put a thoughtful silence followed then pinky got up and joined wallie who was sitting on the top pole of the corral, smoking moodily. The dudes were at target practice with twenty-twos and six-shooters, having been persuaded finally not to use Mr. Canby's range as a background. They now all walked with a swagger and seldom went to their meals without their weapons. Pinky blurted out suddenly, I wished I'd died when I was little. What's the matter? oh nothing it was plain that he wished to be interrogated further but wallie who was thinking of helene spensley and her indifference to him was in no mood to listen to other people's troubles after another period of reflection pinky asked abruptly do you believe in signs to which wallie replied absently can't say i do why if there's anything in signs, I ought to be terrible jealous, the way my eyebrows grow together. Aren't you? Indifferently. Me? Jealous? Nobody could make me jealous, especially a worman. You're lucky, Wallie spoke with unnecessary emphasis. It's an uncomfortable sensation. Pinky shifted uneasily and picked the bit of bark off the corral pole. Don't it look kind of funny that Miss Eyster would take an interest in old man Penrose? A girl like her wouldn't care nothing about his money, would she? Wallie looked dour as he answered. You never can tell, maybe. He had been asking himself the same question about Miss Spenceley, whom he had seen rather frequently of late with Canby. Guess I'll quarrel me a brownie and get into the feathers, glumly. 
I thought I'd go into town in the morning. I want to do me some buying. Wallie nodded, and Pinky added as he unhooked his heels. You want to ride a herd pretty close on Aunt Lizzie. She's bound and determined to go outside the fence hunting moss agates. The cattle are liable to hook her. Canby throwed them longhorns in there on purpose. I'm sure of it, Wally said grimly. Yes, I'll watch Aunt Lizzie, but she isn't worse than Apple, who was over there catching grasshoppers because he said they were fatter. Dudes is aggravating, Pinky admitted. But, philosophically, they're our meal tickets, so we got to swallow em. As Wally watched his partner go up the path to the bunkhouse, he wondered vaguely what purchase he had to make that was so important as to induce him to make a special trip to Prouty. But since Pinky had not chosen to tell him, and Wally had a talent for minding his own business, he dismissed it. Besides, he had more vital things to think about at that moment. It had hurt him that Helene Spensley had not been over. Obviously, he had taken too much for granted, for he had thought that when she saw he was in earnest once more, and in a fair way to make a success of his second venture, things would be different between them. He had imagined she would express her approval in some way, but she seemed to take it all as a matter of course. She was the most difficult woman to impress that he ever had known, but, curiously, the less she was impressed, the more eager he was to impress her. Yet her casualness only spurred him to further effort and strengthened his determination to make her realize that there was a great deal in him worth while, and that some day he would stand for something in the community. But somehow he did not seem to make much progress, and now he asked himself grumpily why, in the Dickens, he couldn't have fallen in love with Mattie Gasket, who followed him like his shadow and had her own income with wonderful prospects. He scuffed at the bark on the corral pole with his foot and thought sourly of the rot he had read about love begetting love. He had not noticed it. It more often begot laughter, and his case was an instance of it. Helene Spensley laughed at him. He was sure of it, and fool that he was, imbecile it did not seem to make any difference there was just one girl for him and always would be he was like that and it was a misfortune in time very likely he would be a hermit or a sourball like canby he would sit at dances looking like a bull elk that's been whipped out of the herd and the girls would giggle at him wallie's mood was undoubtedly pessimistic and finally he trudged up the path to bed hoping he would awaken in a more cheerful humour which he did because he dreamed that with helene spensley beside him he was burning up the road in a machine of a splendour to put canby's eye out the next morning pinky was gone when they gathered at the breakfast table miss eyster looked downcast because he had failed to tell her of his intention and while mrs stott declared that it was very inconsiderate for him to go without mentioning it, since he had promised to match embroidery cotton for her, and 
she could not go on with her dresser's scarf until she had some apple green to put the leaves in with. The morning passed without incident, except that Mr. Budlong was astonished when Wally told him that his new high-power rifle was scattering bullets among Mr. Canby's herd of cattle more than a mile distant, and that it was a great good fortune he had not killed any of them. Otherwise, Wally was engaged, as usual, in answering questions and lengthening and shortening stirrups for ladies the length of whose legs seemed to change from day to day, making such alterations necessary. Miss Gasket healed Wally with flattering faithfulness and incidentally imparted the information that a friend from Zanesville, Ohio, Miss Mercy Lane, was to join their party in Prouty when the date was definitely set for their tour of the Yellowstone. "'She's a dear, sweet girl whom I knew at boarding school, and, archly, you must tell me that you will not fall in love with her,' Wally, who now thought of even dear, sweet girls in terms of dollars and cents, felt that he could safely promise it was a relief when the triangle jangled for dinner, and Wally looked forward to the ride afterward, although it had its attendant irritations, chief of which was the propensity of J. Harry Stott to gallop ahead and then gallop back to see if the party was coming. Rare sport for Mr. Stott, but less so for the buckskin. As soon as that sterling young fellow had discovered that he could ride at a gallop without falling off, he lost no opportunity to do so, and his horse was already showing the result of it. Boosting Aunt Lizzie Philbrick on and off her horse to enable her to pick flowers and examine rocks was a part of the routine, as was recovering Mrs. Budlong's hairpins when her hair came down and she lost her hat. Mr. Budlong, too, never failed to lag behind and become separated from the rest of the party, so that he had to be hunted. He persisted in riding in moccasins, and said that his insteps ached him, so that he could not keep up. Reasoning that every occupation has drawbacks of some kind, Wally bore these small annoyances with patience, though there were times when he confessed that the happy family of the colonial were not altogether so charming and amiable as he had thought. He never would have suspected, for instance, that J. Harry Stock who in his own environment was a person of some little consequence, in another could appear a complete and unmitigated ass, or that Mrs. Budlong had such a wolfish appetite, or that ten cents looked larger to Mr. Apple than a dollar did to Pink, or that old Penrose was vain as a peacock about his looks. Still, Wally consoled himself, everyone had his idiosyncrasies, and if they had not had these, they might have had worse ones. Today there was the usual commotion over getting off, and then, when Wally was ready to boost Aunt Lizzie on her horse, she was nowhere to be found. She was not in her tent, nor had she fallen over the embankment, and the fact that she set great store by her afternoon rides deepened the mystery. Old Mr. Penrose who had unslung his field glasses, declared he saw something that might be the top of Aunt Lizzie's head moving above a small draw 
over on Canby's lease. Mr. Penrose, who had sought ranch life chiefly because he said he was sick of cities and mobs of people, when not riding, now spent most of his time with his high-power glasses, watching the road in the hope of seeing someone passing, and he had come to be as excited when he saw a load of hay as if he had discovered a planet. He passed the glasses to Wally, who adjusted them and immediately nodded. That's somebody in the draw. It must be Aunt Lizzie. There was no doubt about it when she came out and started walking slowly along the top, searching, as she went, for moss agates. Wally gave a sharp exclamation, for, in the moment that they watched her, a small herd of the Texas cattle came around a hill and also saw her. They stopped short and looked at the strange figure. Then, like a band of curious antelope, they edged a little closer. It might be that they would not attack her, but if they did, it was certain they would gore her to death unless someone was there to prevent it. Leading his own horse and dragging Aunt Lily's stubborn white pony behind him, Wally threw down the wire gate, opening into the Canby lease, and sprang into the saddle. He kept his eyes fixed on the cattle as he rode toward Aunt Lizzie, making the best time he could, with her cayuse pulling back obstinately on the bridle. But, in any case, he could not have seen Helene Spensley and Canby riding from the opposite direction, for they were still on the other side of a small ridge which hid them. Helene had stopped at the Canby ranch for luncheon on her way to pay her long-deferred visit to her Willem acquaintances of the colonial, and though Canby had not relished the thought that she was going there, he had asked to accompany her across the leases. Pleased that she had stopped without an invitation, he was more likable than ever she had seen him, and he made no pretense of concealing the fact that she could be mistress of the most pretentious house in the country if she chose to. Helene could not well have been otherwise than impressed by its magnificence. She was aware that with Canby's money and her personal popularity, she could make an enviable position for herself very easily, and she was nothing if not ambitious. The traits in Canby which so frequently antagonized her, his arrogance, his selfish egotism, and disregard of others' rights and feelings, today were not in evidence. He was spontaneous, genial, boyish, almost, and she never had felt so kindly disposed toward him, nor so tolerant of his failings. She looked at him speculatively, now, as he rode beside her, and wondered if association would beget an affection that would do as well as love if supplemented by the many things he had to offer. Her friendlier mood was not lost on Canby, who was quick to take advantage of it. He leaned over and laid his hand on hers as it rested on the saddle-horn. "'Your thoughts of me are kinder than usual, aren't they, Helene? You are less critical?' He spoke almost humbly. She smiled at him, and she admitted, "'Perhaps so.' "'I wish you could think so of me always, because I should be very happy if you—' His narrow, selfish face had a softness she never had seen in it, as he paused while he groped for the exact words 
he wished in which to express himself. There was no need for him to finish, for his meaning was unmistakable, and the color rose in Helene's cheeks as she averted her eyes from his steady gaze and looked on past him. Their horses had been climbing slowly and had now reached the top of the ridge, which gave an uninterrupted view across the flat stretch which lay between them and the ranch that was such an eyesore to Canby. As she took in the sweep of country, her gaze concentrated upon the moving objects she saw in it. Puzzled at first, her look of perplexity was succeeded by one of consternation, then horror. With swift comprehension, she grasped fully the meaning of a scene that was being enacted before her. Her expression attracted Canby's attention even before she pointed and cried sharply, Look! Aunt Lizzie was still busy with her pebbles, a tiny, tragic figure she looked, in view of what was happening, as she walked along in leisurely fashion, stopping every step or two to pick up and examine a stone that attracted her attention. A herd of longhorns had come closer, but one had drawn out from the others and was shaking its head as it trotted down upon her. Wally had long since abandoned the pony he was leading, and with all the speed his own was capable of, was doing his best to intercept the animal before it reached her. But he was still a long way off, and even as Helene cried out, the steer broke into a gallop. Canby, too, instantly grasped the situation. If I only had a rifle! Perhaps we can turn it. We'll have to make an awful run for it, but we can try. They had already gathered the reins and were spurring their horses down the declivity. Canby's thoroughbred leapt into the air as the steel pricked it, and Helene was soon left behind. She saw that she could figure only as a spectator, so she slowed down and watched what followed in fascinated horror. Canby was considerably farther off than Wally in the beginning, but the racing blood in the former's horse's veins responded gallantly to the urge of its rider. It stretched out and laid down to its work like a hare with the hounds behind it, quickly equalizing the distance. Aunt Lizzie was poking at a rock with her toe when she looked up suddenly and saw her danger. The steer, with a spread of horns like antlers, and tapering to needle points, was rushing down upon her, infuriated. For a moment she stood, weak with terror, unable to move, until her will asserted itself, and then, shrieking, she ran as fast as her stiff old legs could carry her. Wally and Canby reached the steer almost together. A goodly distance still intervened between it and Aunt Lizzie but the gap was shortening with sickening rapidity and helene grew cold as she saw that try as they might they could not head it the animal seemed to be conscious only of its fleeing victim when she ran her flight appeared to excite and enrage it further for it bawled with anger the fluttering petticoats were a challenge and the steer was bent on reaching and destroying the strange object with the weapons nature had given it. It was accustomed to horsemen, and had no fear of them, but it saw a menace in the little old woman screaming just ahead. 
so it ignored Canby and Wallie, and they could not swerve it. Helene wrung her hands in a frenzy as she watched their futile efforts. Wallie always carried a rope on his saddle. Why didn't he use it? Was he afraid? Couldn't he? She felt a swift return of her old contempt for him. Was he only a yellowback cowpuncher after all underneath his western regalia? Momentarily she despised him. Notwithstanding his brave appearance, he was as useless in a crisis like this as can be. Pinky was more of a man than either of them. He would stop that steer somehow if he had only his pocket knife to do it. Her lip curled disdainfully, for she had an innate contempt of impotency and failure. She cried out sharply as Aunt Lizzie stumbled and pitched headlong. Between exhaustion and terror that paralyzed her, she was unable to get up, though she tried. The steer, flaming-eyed, was now less than fifty yards from her. Helene felt herself grow nauseated. She meant to close her eyes when it happened. She had seen a horse gored to death by a bull, and it was a sight she did not wish to see repeated. Canby, in advance of Wallie, was a little ahead of the steer, slapping at it with his bridle reins. Wallie behind had been crowding its shoulder, but nothing could divert it from its purpose. Helene was about to turn her head away when she saw Wally lay the reins on his horse's neck and lean from the saddle. His purpose flashed through Helene's mind instantly. Then she cried aloud, incredulously, He's going to try that? And added in a frightened whisper, He can't do it. He can never do it. Wally's horse which had been running at the steer's shoulder, missed his hand on the reins and lagged a little, so that the distance between them was such as to make what he meant to attempt seemingly impossible. For a second he rode with his arm outstretched, as if gauging the distance. Then Helene grew rigid as she saw him leave the saddle. He made it, barely. The gap was so big that it seemed as if it were not humanly possible more than to touch the short mane on the animal's neck with his fingertips. But he clung somehow, his feet and body dragging, while the steer's speed increased rather than slackened. First with one hand, and then with the other, he worked his way to a grip on the horns, which was what he wanted. The steer stopped to fight him. Its feet plowed up the dirt as it braced them to resist him. Then they struggled. The steer was a big one, raw-boned, leggy, a typical old-time longhorn of the Texas ranges, and now in fear and rage it put forth all the strength of which it was capable. With his teeth grinding, Wally fought it in desperation, trying to give the twist that drops the animal. Its breath in his face, the froth from its mouth, blinded him, but still he clung while it threw him this and that way. He himself never knew where his strength came from. Suddenly, the steer fell heavily, and the two lay panting together. Helene drew the back of her hand across her eyes and brushed away the tears that blurred her vision, while a lump rose in her throat too big to swallow. Gentle Annie of the colonial veranda, erstwhile authority on Battenberg and sweaters, 
had accomplished the most reckless of the daredevil feats of the cow country. He had bulldogged a steer from horseback. End of chapter 20